why do we have kind of sequencers in general? It's like because users prefer faster block times and they want those soft commitments. And you say, okay, well, why would we decentralize that? Well, because we still want to remain decentralized. This episode of Empire is brought to you by QuickNode. QuickNode is an end-to-end blockchain development platform that makes building Web3 apps super easy. No matter what you want to build, you can effortlessly develop any application by leveraging their elastic APIs. Go to quicknode.com, use code Empire. You'll get a free month on their feature-backed build plan. That's right. Go to quicknode.com. You'll get a free month to start playing around. You'll hear more about QuickNode later in the show. This episode is brought to you by Quenta the premier derivatives platform on Optimism that offers deep liquidity, low fees, and up to 50x leverage across 24 different assets. You'll hear more about Quenta later in the show. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Empire. Uh, You got Santi and me uh, today, and then we've got Ben, uh, CEO of Espresso, and then we have Josh, CEO of Astria. Ben and uh, Josh, welcome to Empire, guys. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thank you for having us. Yeah, you guys are doing the Blockworks rounds these days. How's it? Uh, how's it? I think two two Blockworks pods in uh, in two weeks. How you doing? <laughs> how, how you feeling about it? It's pretty great. It was great to be on here after research. Good. We wanted Good to warm you guys up because obviously Empire is the best podcast, not you know of the <laughs> Blockworks family, but you know. So, anyways, it's great to have you guys on. Heard a lot of really good things about what you guys are doing. For all of our listeners, one of the more important topics that we've been talking about recently is scalability. And in that context, sort of the L1, L2, we've had the Arbitrum guys come on. We've had uh, Starkware guys come on. And I think all, you know a lot of the conversation, even the multi-coin guys reference of why the L1, L2 dynamic would not work as well is because of the sequencer. And the idea of decentralizing a sequencer has come over, you know, has come up a number of times. So I think this episode, uh, we'll love to touch on that, um, as well as what you guys are building. Why is that, you know, so important? So maybe we can start with intro guys, you know, Josh and, uh, Ben, maybe, uh, you guys can just give us a little bit of background on, on how you got started. Yeah. So I'm Josh, um, CEO, co-founder at Astria. Um, so prior to Astria, I was at Celestia and kind of my work there, Um, was on kind of like, how do we deploy kind of like rollups more generally on Celestia, kind of taking a slightly distinct model from the existing kind of L2s on Ethereum and and that kind of existing kind of known paradigm with like Optimism and Arbitrum being the primary examples at the time. Um, Prior to that, worked at at Edge and Node, you know, who who runs the graph for a little bit. And then before that, I spent, you know, maybe too many years at at Google, um, mostly within the cloud org. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of like my long history there. You know, kind of broadly, what I focused on in my like you know two and a half or so years in crypto is generally around research and scalability more broadly. And I still see you know shared sequencers, decentralized sequencers as just like an, kind of a continued extension of that general research. And I'm Ben. I my introduction to uh, the industry was initially through academic research. Um, I was doing my PhD at Stanford in applied cryptography and then ended up working, um, you know, pretty much from 2015 through through the through the current day on, you know, applications of cryptography to blockchains. And I ended up focusing a lot on questions around not only alternative uh, ways of, of doing consensus in permissionless networks, right, alternatives to proof of work, proof of stake, proof of space, et cetera, but also how to use cryptographic tools to scale the performance of blockchains. Um, and so I I worked in the early days with Filecoin, um, with Chia. Um, 
I worked on problems related to randomness beacons that um, ended up being incorporated into the design of uh, present-day Ethereum. Um, and my journey to Espresso Systems was uh, really just a, a, a long-term passion for how do we scale these blockchains, um, but without compromising on what they're supposed to do, right? And what their core principles are around decentralization, um, decentralization, and, and, and fault tolerance. Ben, uh, Ben, can I pick on you just for almost at the risk of like starting too basic here? Can you just yeah. give us a definition of sequencers and what they look like today? And and maybe there's a second part of that question, which is like just validators, like what they are, um, and and really like what is what what is a sequencer? Yes, so a sequencer is a term that has arisen from this now more modular description of blockchains and what they do, right? So the original concept of a blockchain is you have a distributed virtual machine and it has to order transactions to a state machine and execute them. Um, as soon as we started shifting to outsourcing some of these roles to layer two, namely proving, right, um, and execution, which is the core of how rollups actually achieve scalability or you know uh, remove computational bottlenecks in uh, in blockchains, um, then we still have all these roles that we need to take care of, right? If you have a rollup that's uh, proving the result of executing some sequence of transactions, how do that tra how do those transactions get ordered? Do they get ordered by the L1 and just not executed, or is there an external system that is handling that ordering? Right. Similar to how now we've separated out uh, data availability into data availability layers, um, all of these are required for, 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 for consensus. You need to make the data available. You need to make sure that the available data is ordered. That's what a sequencer does, whether it's a single computer or a decentralized consensus protocol. And then you need to execute these transactions that are available in the order that they've been ordered in order to derive the resulting state of the machine and convince all the other clients connecting to the system of that current state. And Josh, maybe can you just frame this conversation for us a little bit more? What, like, what is the state of how sequencers work on, on rollups today? Yeah, so rollups today, you know, generally conflate what I think, you know, Ben and I would agree is like, like actually like two components of like, you know, sequencing, it'll be like sequencing and like, like validating to some degree, right? And that there is sequencing, which is just ordering the blocks, right? And defining for a given like fork of a chain, like what is the canonical ordering of, you know, this block? And then how do we append the block onto that, right? How do we get this kind of chain? And then there is also generating the state route. So this is the execution part, right? Of applying a given state machine transition function over an ordered set of blocks on top of the previous, um, you know, state root at the end of the previous block, right? Um, we view sequencing as kind of like purely just the act of taking a set of transactions in a mempool or however you're choosing to gather these kind of unordered transactions and then producing this ordered block and then attesting to that ordering. That's like an important component of that, right? In the existing state, you have these centralized attesters um, run by, you know, Arbitrum or Optimism, right, that say, hey, here is like um, the order of the block, and then they will batch that, um, make a transaction, and then submit that to the um, call data on the kind of contract they have on the Ethereum as their L1. But they will also do a second step, which is attesting to a given state route and kind of like actual state of the state machine for the L2. Um, and, and we view, I guess, the kind of key distinction, I think, of like kind of the shared sequencing is that we separate that sequencing into just the ordering step, whereas right now they're doing both the ordering 
and the validation and attestation of that given state root. Okay, so today we have basically, so three layers, you have like the DA layer, the data availability layer, you have like the ordering, and then you have the execution layer. Today, is it fair to say that sequencing and then like determining the state and the and, and execution are kind of like, they're kind of all they're kind of all happening in one layer. But in the future, those will be those will be like, own, almost owned by different folks who specialize in that thing. It's kind of a fluffy yes. way to describe no, that. that no, that's a that's 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 a good high level description. I may just add to that that so today most layer one blockchains do all three of those things, right? Like Ethereum does all three of those things, and also most rollups that are running on top of Ethereum, they're maybe they're using Ethereum for data availability, but then they're taking ownership of and actually centralizing both the sequencing and then the execution and proving. Um, so we. We, we, I, I do expect to see that the, you know, these roles will become more modular, that at least the decentralization. Uh, so it's not clear that proving needs to be decentralized because once you've determined the ordering of transactions in the state machine, then anyone can submit a proof. It's not really like a permissioned role. It's just you have a correct proof or not, or uh, you know, the same for fraud proofs. But the, the determination of who gets to be included and in what order, you know, that, that should be Central that shouldn't be centralized if you want to retain the original properties of blockchains. Um, and so the reason why it became centralized is, is mostly for performance reasons uh, and that it was, you know, too expensive or not good for the user experience to use Ethereum as an L1 for both availability and ordering. And maybe to this as a follow-up to that, how complicated, like if you're, if you're the... Arbitrum team or the optimism team, not to pick on one or the other, but just why is it a fair characterization that they've punted this? Maybe hoping that someone like you would come in and fix it, or is it more like a technical problem that they would hope that the user experience would be vastly, you know, better that at some point you figure it out, like this sort of progressive decentralization that a lot of teams take in crypto, right? Yeah, I think almost, uh, I, I can't think of a project that I'm aware of that, that doesn't have decentralization somewhere on the roadmap. Um, and it's, it's hard to say as a selling point of a scalability solution that, hey, we've solved the scalability problem by centralizing the process of, you know, ordering your data, right? It's not, now it's losing one of the core principles, it's losing um, the credible neutrality of the system, it's losing the anti-monopolistic behavior of the system. So, among others. And um, I think rollups just see this as like an, an iterative process, right? It's already hard to build a ZKVM or an optimistic VM. And so they started with centralized sequencers because it's simpler. Mm -hmm. um, you can get a product off the ground. Um, but I, I think either teams are planning on building their own uh, decentralization solutions for that sequencing step, or they are hoping for other people to solve that problem and then mm -hmm. they can just plug in. Hmm. For from a user perspective, what's the worst that can happen in today's environment where it's centralized? What are the biggest risks? And maybe there is some nuance between, as I understand, between Arbitrum and Optimism. One has fraud proofs, the other one does not. Both, by and large, are centralized sequencers. But I'm curious if you could go into, like, what's the worst that can happen in the current state mm -hmm. of these L2s? Boy, I mean, that's a, and I'll let Josh jump in here too. I don't mean to hog the mic, but that's like a really deep question because you could, you could ask that question about blockchains 
overall, like that, the question is what's so bad about a centralized system and what are the advantages of blockchains? And so we could probably spend a whole podcast series talking about that. And I think that it's not like, there isn't like a, a, an obvious answer to that. I think that it's very nuanced, right? And you can look at the evolution of how applications have been built on blockchains and how the decentralization may or may not have led to that. Um, but some of the things that I like to emphasize about a centralized system versus a decentralized system are one, credible neutrality, right? Um, uh, two, I think that from an economic perspective, um, one of the, the the most incredible things about blockchains are that they achieve services with network effects, but without monopolization, right? One of the reasons why internet services are so monopolized is because there are very strong network effects around internet services. It's hard to compete with Facebook. It's hard to compete with even the existing banking system, right? It's difficult to get users to switch to a new system because all the state is in one place. All the other users are there. All the liquidity is there. Um, in the same vein, it's it's hard to compete. It's hard for another blockchain to compete with Ethereum, right? Um, because it has all the liquidity, all the users, all the applications. Uh, what's amazing about Ethereum is that because of the decentralization of its validator set, and specifically the, the set of nodes that get to determine, you know, what ends up getting included and how it's priced and uh, and how it's ordered, etc., is decentralized in a way that's to quasi fosters competition among the different nodes, right? Decentralization leads to more short-sighted short myopic behavior of participants rather than engaging in long-term strategies to price out users who aren't willing to, to pay enough, right? If, if a blockchain were centralized, then you might see pricing that involves keeping it so that only one party can transact who's willing to pay a million dollars. The revenue maximizing price may be above what the market clearing prices were supplying meets demand. Um, and so the problem with scalability is like, how do we increase the supply side? But we don't want to lose the decentralization because if you increase the supply, but you lose the decentralization, it doesn't matter, right? You now have a monopolistic system that will just determine sort of a monopolistic strategy of how to allocate resources. Josh, would you add to that? I mean, it sounds like, um, Ben, if I had to almost repeat that back, it's like the risks of having a centralized sequencer are censorship, uh, like risk of reordering, risk that it maybe goes down. And then that last thing what that you were saying is broadly uh, categorized as like malicious behavior, basically. Well, monopolistic. Uh, I wouldn't monopolistic so, so far as say malicious. Yeah, yeah. is from an economic perspective. Right. Um, exactly. Yeah. And Josh, feel free to go and answer this, but are users' funds ever at risk in the sense that, you know, someone can, because I, I think at some point security becomes important where if, if, is there a backdoor? Can people rug you? Are your funds are at risk? A lot of times we've talked to teams and they say, the worst that can happen is there's a delay, but you will always get your funds back because they can't, there's not like a, an ability for the particular team that's behind the project to kind of, you know, rug you and take your assets. There might be a delay, but by and large, uh, so I'm, I'm, I want to make it clear for our listeners if, if there's that risk today in L2, in the way yeah, these so L2s are operating. I think one key thing, right, is like like the only party that is allowed to like append a new block to like the chain is like the centralized party and the centralized sequencer, right? That's like the fundamental structure of it. That doesn't mean that like, you know, Optimism or Arbitrum like has access to like your private key and can sign a message that moves your funds from like your account to another. Um, they, they could just like hard fork the chain, right? And just like zero out your funds, right? If they just say, hey, we're going to like zero out this address, we're mm -hmm. like hard fork the chain. That is pretty obviously like detectable in that like you would then go connect to like the RPC and be like, oh, look, my, my, my money's gone. And like whether your ability to like 
prove that, right? Fraud proof of this kind of verifiable mechanism to actually like prove that like an invalid state transition like occurred. Um, so there's various kind of things like that. I don't want to dive too much into kind of the social question of like, could they hard fork the chain in like an undetectable manner? If we like assume that is kind of out of the scope, then like, no, they can't like steal your funds from a censorship perspective, right? They do have what's called like, like the escape hatch or whatever you want to term it, right? But this, you know, forced withdrawal transaction to um, the L1 by way of submitting a transaction directly through like the L1 smart contract, right? And then that inherits the um, kind of like censorship properties of like Ethereum's L1, which are like very, very like, good, right? Like it's unlikely that you're going to be censored within Ethereum. I, I think the more kind of concerning things right now is like, okay, you know, in like a congested gas time or whatever, right? If you're censored by the sequencer, like the quality of your service degrades. And for whatever reason, the sequencer says, I don't like you and I'm not going to submit your transactions in batches. You're going to have to go through the L1. You know, then you have to suffer whatever is like the L1 cost. To some degree, there's a question of like, you know, the cost savings of submitting like a transaction to the L1 versus like through the L2, what is the benefit of using the L2 if you kind of are forced to fall back to that, right? So it's like, you know, should be assumed to be like, like a failure mode, right? It's a more acceptable failure mode than like your funds are locked forever. Um, you know, to like the MEV discussion, right? Which has been like, obviously, you know, you know, very happening lately, right? Like, you know, there's this question of like, either optimism and arbitrum by way of like sequencing are like extracting all of the MEV or none of the MEV, but like, they're the only party that is kind of allowed to extract this MEV, whereas all the other MEV is like this first come first serve, right? Which is essentially just like this, you know, probabilistic spamming of like trying to get your transaction in. But it's again to like the detectability of these faults, I think is one of the big questions of like, could you detect if like optimism was like front running every transaction or whatever, like probably, but like, you know, again, one of these difficulties of like blockchains inherently, right? Is like, how do you know if like optimism controls this pool of, you know, addresses or whatever that happens to have transaction adjusting, you know, that happen to be front running, et cetera. So there's things like that, I think, to, to Ben's point, right? It's this credible neutrality. It's just kind of hard to verify whether or not it actually is being neutral. But like, I, I do think it's important to note that like, you know, in, in existing like, you know, optimism, arbitrum designs, and I'm assuming for the, the ZK um, EVMs as well, right? Your funds can, can get out, right? You have that escape hash mechanism. And it, it's not like the centralized sequencer is capable of signing a transaction with your private key. Uh, yeah, I I think though when it does when it comes to talking about security, um, it's like easy to oversimplify. I think that in some ways, even just comparing centralized systems and decentralized systems, um, it's an apples to oranges comparison. There isn't uh, you know one is not clearly more secure than the other. We really need to unpack that. Um, and in particular here, when we talk about rollups. Um, if we just talk about, okay, let's say you bridge over assets from ETH, you deposit ETH into the rollup, then can those be stolen, right? Um, no, if there are mechanisms for always, like if there's an escape hatch, if there's a way of withdrawing, if Ethereum is always verifying the state of the rollup and Ethereum, uh, there's a commitment on an Ethereum smart contract to the definition of that virtual machine, then no, from that very narrow perspective, these funds can't be stolen. On the other hand, if you look at the virtual machine as being defined by the company that's running the virtual machine and they can change the way it works and they can update the smart contract and you look at the security of assets that are not just bridging from Ethereum to the rollup, but the security of transactions and the finality of transactions within the rollup itself, then the question becomes more complicated, right? Um, yes, proofs are being verified by Ethereum maybe every few hours, but 
if the rollup is giving you soft confirmations as a centralized sequencer and you're trusting those for finality and then you go and send some goods to someone then you are at risk of that being reversed right so i i think it's a it's a more it's like a pretty nuanced question um so there isn't just like a really easy straightforward answer to it cuz i've heard, i have a question just actually so, okay so there's like three roles of a blockchain right i'm this is i'm going to I'm still almost struggling to grasp one thing. So like three roles of a blockchain, you have uh, like guaranteeing the availability of the data, uh, the data availability layer. Then you have um, achieving consensus on like transaction ordering, and then you have executing the transactions. Why does an L2 or rollup even need a sequencer? Like why can't you just use an L1 for the first two, for both the first two buckets, for, for ordering the data and the availability of data? You can. You can absolutely do that. I, I think that's one of the like the points. Um, and, and this is something that I, I like. It's a great. It's great that you're asking this question because I don't think it's like it's. I don't think it's obvious to the to the whole to the whole industry. Like you can absolutely use the L1. You can use Ethereum for making the data available, available, ordering it, not executing it, and then um, and uh, and then just the, what, what is the job of a rollup? Uh, it's to report what the state execution result is. And then either just post that and put a bond to it and wait for someone else to challenge it through a fraud proof or to just prove straight away using uh, snarks that it is correct. Um, and so what rollups really do are just separating ordering from execution. That's literally all they do. Um, the, 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 the question then becomes like, well, is, is Ethereum as a layer one, right? Is that ideal for the ma making data available and ordering it? Right. Or is there room for improvement? Um, and so um, the, the other thing is that there are fundamental design trade offs of both the A layers and consensus protocols for ordering. Uh, you can be dynamically available, but then have long latency um, or you can have uh, optimistic responsiveness um, and, and the potential to give faster confirmations, but then not be dynamically available. And um, and I and that's why. You know, my perspective today is, well, you can get the same validator set to essentially run more than one ordering service so that users can choose which one to use. And that's, the, that's like the approach we're taking at Espresso, which is like use Eigenlayer to get the Ethereum validators to run an optimistically responsive protocol so that users just have more options. But do, they can totally use Ethereum as well. Presuming that Ethereum improves its, uh, I mean, once dank sharding comes onto the scene and improves its its its, its way of, of handling, um, you know, data availability in a more scalable way, which is like Ethereum today is not really set up to do, then it will become a good service for data ordering and availability. And and some of the work that other projects in the layer two system are doing in the modular blockchain ecosystem, like Celestia, like us, is uh, is is just to build systems that are optimized for the availability and ordering roles. Right, with an eye towards the fact that they don't have to do other things like execution, and that that's outsourced huh. to a different process. Okay, so so I get all of, so I get all of that. Um, then I guess the second part of that question is like, why would an L two want to use an external sequencer here? Right, like if you have a centralized sequencer, it's this honeypot for MEV, um, and then all the things that you mentioned, like censorship resistance and like monopolistic behavior, like those are all things that are really good for. The user, or that the you're help, trying to help the user with, but if you're the mm -hmm. L2, like, I mean, you're, it's actually, I, I don't really get the incentive to use an external sequencer. So maybe I could hear both of your guys' take on this because I know you're both, obviously, those are the two big core things that you're working on. 
Yeah, uh, really good question. I'll, I'll go quickly and then bump it to you, Josh. Um, so, first of all, to make uh, to, to you know to 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 accrue value, a rollup needs users. So, doing things that are better for users does <laughs> does lead to more, especially in a competitive environment where there's many different rollups out there and users get to choose which one to use. Um, I think it is important for rollups to consider what's good for users. What do users want, right? Um, the, the, the conception that by moving, uh, you know, sequencing to another system, whether it's like Ethereum L1 or another, you know, system in the modular stack like Celestia or Espresso or Astria, et cetera, for, um, for handling availability of data and ordering, right. It, it doesn't mean that value won't be shared back to the rollup. In fact, there's a strong incentive for the, for the communities to align, right. Uh, a system like Celestia or Astria or Espresso have, and, and their stakeholders like have um, have, a, have a strong incentive to retain rollups as users. Rollups can easily move away if they're not getting their fair share of the value. And so it becomes an economic allocation problem, um, which has its own challenges, like not just in the blockchain space, but it's like, if you have all the phone companies using a common infrastructure, then how do you price things, right? How do you allocate revenue as well? Um, and that's a solvable problem. It, 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 it's, uh, and, um, and, 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 and if overall the system is increasing, is, is better for users, uh, then, and it's more interoperable and thus it creates more economic value overall, then there's a larger pie to share. Josh, I'll bump it over to you. You know, I think I agree with those points. I think going back to like kind of the, the previous question of like, you know, why, why would one, like, why would you not just use like ETHL1 for like your, your sequencing, right? And like fundamentally, right, it's like a user demand question, right? Like Optimism and Arbitrum's original design, where like you will post the transactions to the L1. The L1 will then, you know, just provide availability for them and you'll have this off-chain process that gives the state route and kind of attests to like the validity of these transactions and has a challenge mechanism, right? But fundamentally, like users prefer faster block times, right? And so one of the reasons I see kind of decentralized sequencers as like a like a worthy thing is this general idea that like like maybe it's somewhat kind of like like cynical but like users i believe will trend towards something that like provides like a higher quality user experience in like a like a visual um kind of manner to them and what i mean by that is like you know they will feel that it takes two seconds for um a transaction to go through than 20 seconds for a transaction to go through and they will prefer the two second one what they won't visually see is the trade-off they are making that resulted in one being two seconds versus one being 20 seconds. You know, it's one of these mm -hmm. general difficult things of cryptography and security kind of things in general is you become aware of them when they fail catastrophically. And prior to that, everyone just assumes everything is going smoothly. And then, you know, is it too late once the system fails catastrophically to say, well, you already accepted some trade-offs you weren't aware you were accepting. So, that's what I see as like, why do we have kind of sequencers in general? It's like, because users prefer faster block times and they want those soft commitments. And you say, okay, well, why would we decentralize that? Well, because we still want to remain decentralized, you know, to Ben's point, right? And to the modular thesis generally is the idea that like you can do one role or, or a smaller set of all of the roles of a blockchain in a more optimized manner um by just doing that right and so we can say well this thing is providing sequencing and is providing decentralization guarantees not necessarily as strong as ethereum it might not have you know that side the validator said it might not have that economic weight but it's giving you this soft commitment 
um, that is stronger or, or more credibly neutral than what you get from like a centralized provider. So it's still an improvement, but it's also mm. still giving you the user experience that the users want. And what this is fundamentally providing is like an alternative to a user using a centralized system, right? You know, the job fundamentally is providing users with a good enough experience without kind of, you know, uh, requiring them to sacrifice the decentralization principles to get that better user experience. Because if the only option available to them for this high quality user experience that, you know, is 10 times better or whatever, you know, significant enough for them to kind of move from wherever they are, um, is centralized, then like some percentage of users will do so. So I think it's important to provide them an option that is still decentralized while hmm. providing that good user experience. Hmm. So there's this, I've heard this concern that um, rollups running on shared sequencers won't see the same value accrual as rollups running on their own sequencer. But I think it, both of your pushback would be like consumers and users will end up preferring de uh, L2s or rollups that end up decentralizing their sequencer and therefore they actually will accrue more value because users will, will, will flow there. Is that correct? That is true. I, I think, I think that's like maybe an optimistic take. I, I, I take a pretty cynical perspective in that like generally I assume users just quite frankly, like don't give a damn about decentralization. Like, like at least some batch of users, my view is like, you know, to growing the pie question, we have, you know, X tens of thousands or, you know, millions or whatever, tens of millions of like crypto users, you know, I don't know where that comes into daily active, monthly active, whatever. Um, sure. But if we want to grow the pie, my assumption is that each new user is somewhat less ideologically aligned with like the ethos of crypto than the existing batch of users. And so, you know, as we move from, you know, the people using Bitcoin in like 2011, right, we have generally gotten on average, like less motivated by the decentralized principles of it. And so it is somewhat on our, on, on, on us as like kind of creators of technology to reinforce those primitives and provide good user experiences mm -hmm. to users who quite frankly, don't necessarily care about it being decentralized. I'm not convinced that decentralization on its own is like a selling point to users. I think you kind of have to do like an active marketing campaign to go say, look, we believe it is unacceptable for these rollups to be a point of centralization. We think it is normalizing points of centralization as an acceptable kind of thing within these overall decentralized systems. And it kind of trains users who are just not going to have the time, the energy to think about these things as thoroughly to say, oh, that's actually fine because look, they've been doing it for two years. If they do it for five years, then this is the status quo. This is the normal thing. So I really do think it's partially a marketing campaign, a PR thing to say, no, this is an unacceptable status quo and we need to change it. But you need to do that in such a way that doesn't make the users make these horrible trade-offs in user experience. And that's really our job here. Would you say that regula regulation is the main catalyst here? I, I think from an exogenous state, yeah. I, I think, you know, like internally, we should be pushing it as like a community. We should say we should be decentralized for the sake of being decentralization. I think exogenously, if, you know, one of the, you know, founders or whatever of Arbitrum or Optimism, you know, shows up on TV in handcuffs and goes to jail and we have a whole thing, then, yeah, I think everyone's going to decentralize their sequencers really, really quickly, Right. Um, but ideally we can just kind of altruistically move towards saying, Hey, these are the ideals of the industry and we can meet them without needing to be, you know, directly threatened by, you know, the external kind of governing agencies. I, I don't, 
I don't fully, I just, <laughs> I don't, I don't fully agree with that perspective. Like I respect that perspective, but I, I don't, I don't think that, um, uh, users don't care about decentralization or that, uh, decentralization is solely for the purpose of, uh, regulatory arbitrage. Um, I, I, I would put the thing that I would push back on is that users like and care about the effects that come from decentralization. Even if they don't say they, they care about, have an opinion about decentralization or not itself. Users like the fact that all apps on Ethereum are composable with all other apps. And that comes from the fact that Ethereum is a decentralized system. They're all sharing the same system. They're all interoperable, right? Imagine a centralized, you're not going to have a centralized sequencer that all the rollups use. So if, if decentralization is like a precursor to more interoperability as well between the rollups and users care about that, they care about shared liquidity. They care about the fact that if you have cash on one system, you're not going to be isolated for all other rollups, right? You don't have to just buy in to the ZK Sync ecosystem and then not be able to pay for anything on other systems. And so um, decentralization as a precursor to more bridging between uh, rollups, uh, you know, more interoperability. And then users also care about um, the, the unique uh, services that can be provided to them by block builders. Proposer builder separation does not work with a centralized sequencer. There's no incentive for a centralized sequencer to work with a block builder, right? It's a consequence of the myopic behavior of miners in a decentralized system or validators in a decentralized system um, that makes them engage in it rather than rather than engaging in longer term strategies, right? They engage in shorter term strategies to build the most valuable block they can. And that might be provided by a service like Flashbots. And Flashbots guarantees users that their transactions don't fail. Right. A centralized sequencer would like to charge users for failed transactions because it can make more money that way. So yeah, to be fair though, that would compromise the user experience, right? It, it, there there comes a time where if you're interacting in Arbitrum and but look, both of them have centralized sequencers. But if they start getting too greedy, then at some point you're going to realize that some users, not all, and they'll migrate over to your other L2 flavor of choice. So it's a quasi-competitive mm -hmm. market. I do agree with you that it is still very fragmented. And you know, once you acquire a user in Arbitrum, then you know they can probably get away with some slack from MEV perspective until it becomes a critical issue and they migrate over to Optimus. Totally, totally. I think it is a very interesting question is like, is competition among blockchains enough to achieve the, like maybe decentralization isn't necessary if blockchains were all perfectly competitive with each other and Solana was a perfect substitute for Ethereum, then there would be competitive pressure on miners not to like, you know, front run mm -hmm. users. And But the, it's, it, I think that that comes back to sort of the core issue, which is that internet services um, are prone naturally to uh, to centralization due to network effects. And so you do have to decentralize the operation of the internet service if you want to have long-term resilience to these things. All right, quick break from the show. There is this kind of overused cliche saying in crypto, but it's true, bear markets are building. And everyone tells you that and everyone knows it. What people don't know is that if you're building apps in crypto and building apps in Web3 without using QuickNode, you are building on hard mode. So QuickNode is, is this amazing blockchain development platform. It reduces costs, streamlines the time to market for your app, and it offers consistent performance at scale. For folks that have built apps, you will know that there are a couple key points here. One, QuickNode offers 
unlimited endpoints across 18 different chains and 35 different networks. They have response times that are two and a half times faster than any of their competitors, 99.99% uptime and a dedicated 24-7 customer support team. If you've been listening to Empire for a while, you might know that I am no Gigabrain developer, but I do know a lot of devs and a lot of great product teams at other places. So when I see Coinbase and Twitter and Adobe and OpenSea and Dune Analytics all leveraging and trusting QuickNode to power their business, that's when we get excited and that's when we want to partner with them. They're the best solution for any leading crypto and Web3 company that is seeking an end-to-end blockchain development platform right out of the box. So my message to you, get off hard mode, let QuickNode handle the blockchain infrastructure, let QuickNode handle the security let QuickNode handle the performance while you focus on building beautiful products for your users. Visit quicknode.com, super easy. You can use code EMPIRE. You'll get a free month on their build plan. So don't forget to use code EMPIRE. Santi and I got to get credit for this one so they know that we sent you and you will get a first month free. Hope you guys enjoy it. This episode is brought to you by Quenta. Trade smarter with Quenta. Quenta is the premier derivatives trading platform on Optimism that features deep liquidity, low fees, and up to 50x leverage across 24 different assets, all powered by synthetics. If you want to trade crypto, forex, or commodities on-chain, Quenta is the platform for you. It's built for both the casual degen and advanced traders. It offers stop losses, limit orders, cross-margining, and a whole bunch of other advanced order types. And unlike Most of today's Web3 products, Quenta has a super easy to use interface, including a position dashboard, charts, and a leaderboard for a seamless experience. Go to quenta.io, that's quenta.io right now. Tell them we sent you, tell them Santi sent you, tell them Yeno sent you, tell them Empire sent you, quenta.io. Hope you guys enjoy. Yeah. So maybe uh, transition a little bit into the state of your development and you mentioned, I mean, there's a lot there that you mentioned, uh, and I want to unpack that in, in terms of the user experience changing once you decentralize the sequencer, maybe start by saying, okay, where are you guys in this process to make this happen? And as a beta, how does a user experience get impacted? I mean, obviously there's a lot of assumptions there that you have to make, but is it slower? Is it more expensive? Maybe can, I mean... Maybe we can start with you, Josh. Yeah. So just kind of like giving like a state of kind of like our development internally, we don't have anything kind of like publicly available. Our code is public, but like we don't have like a public test net or anything. We have like an internal, you know, you know, developer network, you know, we're working on from like a, how a user kind of submits a transaction in, in our test net, you know, we've structured things such that, um, you know, it's like roughly similar, like they submit a transaction to like an RPC endpoint of like an Ethereum node that gets included in the shared sequencer. And then the Ethereum node, you know, that quite frankly, like has to be customized, right, to work with this shared sequencer, can pay attention to the shared sequencer and kind of, you know, reads when like a block is included. And then it can check and say, okay, hey, my transaction that I submitted to the shared sequencer was included. And that runs at the block time of the shared sequencer. You know, our local DevNet, that's like, you know, whatever, like half a second or whatever, right? If we run node one note, right? That's presumably somewhere in the order of like, you know, one to three seconds or something. Um, you know, it depends on your consensus algorithm and how quickly you want to run that and yada, yada, trade-offs on MEV timing. But roughly that user experience is somewhat similar. Um, I, I think 
fundamentally the trade-off might be almost uh, larger at like the developer sense. And I mean, the developer of like the roll-up itself in that, you know, once you decentralize, you fundamentally have kind of a higher coordination overhead to continue development of something, right? You know, if Optimism wants to change something on Optimism, right, they can update that. You know, if they have to hotfix a patch or whatever, right, you know, they're like, all right, well, we have like one sequencing node that defines like the canonical chain, right? We just have to go fix that. Same as any other centralized service. You can roll out a hotfix in, you know, order of minutes, right? Whereas if you look at something like, you know, say the Dragonberry exploit, on Cosmos that affected, you know, the general Cosmos SDK and all of the chains impacted there, right? It was a relatively large coordination effort kind of behind the scenes to say, okay, we have to get a bunch of people to all update their stuff and otherwise all the chains halt, but we don't want any of them to leak this thing. So there's various things like that, but an end user experience is, you know, it can be structurally similar. I think it will be different than a first come first serve thing. And, and there's a lot of points we could go into on MEV, block building, PBS, how transaction submission works, order flow auction. But generally, it's pretty similar from an end user flow. Ben, before I go to you, just curious, yeah. who are these sequencers? Like, who are you going out to? Are these, like, the same folks that are, like, uh, behind Lido, you know, that have doing validation? Are these enterprises or the, you know, your, your typical kind of single, you know, sophisticated dev out there like i'm curious from a who, who are the these entities yeah are. these like industrialized validators or <laughs> these individuals like what yeah is that a question for me or for josh or both ben maybe you can go and then Great. transition into yeah. talking a little bit about space. right i mean building a decentralized uh, sequencing layer is akin to building a decentralized l1 um and so we i mean we don't have a validator set yet. We're still building. Uh, but that's one of the reasons why we're extraordinarily excited about working with Eigenlayer because I think it's brilliant that you already have, you know, 30,000 validators on Ethereum. And how many of those are actually distinct? Maybe 10,000 but or, or, or less. But the point is there's already, if we take, if we start from the premise that there's a decentralized validation set of Ethereum, and that's ultimately what we're trying to scale, right? Or take any other blockchain, let's focus on Ethereum for now. Then there's the protocol you want the system to run on, but then there's also the physical set, right? And two different protocols can share the same physical set. So you can get Ethereum validators to, and in fact, it makes complete sense for Ethereum validators to take part in operating the protocols that the layer two of Ethereum is running on. Otherwise, you may even have you know, economic misalignment between the L1 and the L2. Um, and so eigenlayer or restaking more generally is, a, I think, a, a really clever way of subsidizing their entry into the system, right? So if they already have ETH stake, they don't have to invest into a new uh, token or capital in order, to, uh, in order to participate in a new service. Uh, and I think it's a brilliant bootstrapping mechanism for, for acquiring a decentralized physical set to run your new protocol that now offers a different set of properties from Ethereum, not to just not to do a change in the set of physical nodes that it's running on, but due to a change in how the protocol is operating and what it's optimizing for. Ben, do you want to give a? I know we skipped over your uh, overview on what you're working on. If you want to, if you want to do that. 
Oh, yeah. So, uh, well, Josh and I are both working on, uh, on decentralized uh, sequencing as, 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 a, as sort of a layer that can be used by rollups, whether sovereign rollups or existing major L2 rollups. Um, and our, our approach is the following. Um, as we discussed at the beginning, you can always use the L1 for ordering and availability. Right, you can use Ethereum for that, and Ethereum is working on improving its functionality as a data availability and ordering layer. Um, but Ethereum is is sort of wedded to a certain set of uh, principles around, um, you know, the trade offs it makes in the design in the consensus design space. One of those is dynamic, extreme dynamic availability, so that if only ten percent of the nodes are online, the system is still alive. Um, that sacrifices on liveness, so that's why it has extremely long, like minutes long um, latency, right? The 12 second block time is just for one block, but you have to wait for multiple blocks to really get confirmation. And, um, and, so, and so if you if you take the perspective that, well, part of the reason why users or rollups have moved to centralized sequencing is that it's, users really want that. Uh, they want the, the the experience that you get from a centralized server, which is the opposite of dynamic availability, right? That it, if if the one server goes down, then the whole system goes down. On the other hand, the one the one server has extremely low latency and 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 can give you fast confirmations. Then let's try to build a consensus protocol that uh, that is still decentralized, okay, and in fact can scale to the same physical set of nodes that Ethereum is running on, but that optimizes for the features of a centralized sequencer that optimistic responsiveness, for example, right? Mm. Um, and get the Ethereum validator set to run that as an alternative. And then you may have rollups that choose one or the other based on what they think their users want, right? You could run on Ethereum's base layer for your sequencing and availability, or you could run um, the protocol that we're designing called Hotshot, um, which offers the alternative, uh, which is optimistic responsiveness, but you need all the hotshot nodes. The system only makes progress when when 75% are online. Hmm. Guys, can, we're 40 minutes in here. I want to almost zoom back out for anyone who's completely lost now. Josh, you spent four or five years at Google. Can can you guys try to make some like analogies to almost like web two land? And like how to me, what I hear is basically everyone's trying to do everything in-house right now. And you see a world where there's specialization and this is almost like paying, I don't know, Amazon for AWS or something. And everyone used to run their own data centers. And eventually we'll live in a world where like there's like AWS and, and Azure or something. Probably a broken analogy, but I'm sure there's an, an analogy to be made there. Have you guys thought about these analogies? And like, what are they? And then maybe where do they break down? Yeah, so we've I, we've used one, you know, that, that I've used terms like, like decentralization of the service. And that's because I've worked on, you know, AWS, you know. Uh, GCP, whatever, you know, infrastructure as a service, platforms as a service, you know, software as a service, right? And it generally fits into that category of like, you're going and buying something off the shelf. I think the analogy is like somewhat, you know, apt um, in, in that the idea is we want to make it very easy to kind of tie into an existing service. If you're a roll-up and you say, you know, what we really want to avoid is, you know, the roll-ups who say, okay, I'm going to start, I'm going to make a roll-up, I'm going to be centralized, we're going to put decentralization on our roadmap, we'll get to that when we burn down every other priority in a very rapidly kind of evolving ecosystem where they're always bumping things above the decentralization, right? So we can say, okay, you can go say, we want to be decentralized, great, we can go get decentralization off the shelf. There are obviously trade-offs, there are costs to that, but like we offer that as an off-the-shelf service. And the hope is that we see 
um, you know, in my view, like a expansion of kind of like innovation by way of like that problem kind of like being solved. And, you know, one of the benefits I think of a lot of the cloud services, which obviously like had trade-offs, right? They're centralizing things, you know, you're paying, you know, the margins of, you know, Amazon or Google or whatever, right? Um, and we get to kind of competitive questions there. But fundamentally, you can say, I can go make a service that focuses on, you know, all my effort on a smaller portion of the stack while being able to get kind of a high quality experience equivalent to larger players because everyone is sharing kind of similar things, right? You can have similar uptime to what a Fortune 500 company service has um, without having to staff, you know, 50 infrastructure engineers to do that. Hmm. Pat, have you thought I, about these analogies? Y yes, yes, absolutely. I think that the AWS analogy, um, you know, works to some extent uh, in the sense that if you're a company and you want to run a scalable database system, transactional database system, or analytical database system, whatever, you, you, you can, you know, use AWS and then you don't have to build out your own distributed system. Uh, that works here too, as an analogy, because if you're a roll-up company and you don't want to have to build your own consensus protocol that decentralizes your sequencer, then you can use what, what I'm building or what, or what Josh is building. Um, but I think the analogy kind of stops there, right? And there's, I think, a much bigger picture here, which goes back to like this, the whole story of blockchains from the very beginning and, and how we've, you know, I've been in the industry for, for a very long time and kind of we, a lot of the questions we're asking here sort of we were asking as well when everyone was just developing their own L1, right? And then there was a question of why build an app? Why, why not build your own blockchain for your app, right? Rather than just build an app on another blockchain like Ethereum. And th that's where this analogy with AWS completely breaks down because people don't use AWS in order to talk to other services that are running on AWS, right? Um, when when people stopped just building competitive L1s and realized, oh wow, I can I can I can build a much more successful product by building an application on Ethereum that now plugs in to all the other applications that are running on this shared VM. And boom, we had DeFi, right? Boom, we had NFTs. We had all this explosion of activity that uh, that you know took us away from just like the ICO boom of like minting your own token and 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 doing. I mean, well, to some degree, people minted tokens on Ethereum, but you know, we we moved away from just everyone building a competitive blockchain to people working with the same blockchain and taking advantage of this shared state, which is really one of the reasons why blockchains have brought so much more economic value. Uh, to 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 our society, right? And so it's the same exact thing here, right? If you're if if every rollup runs on its own isolated system and they're not talking to each other, it's just like L1s in the early days competing with each other, and everyone's just going to build their own custom blockchain for their own custom app. I want to uh, I want to put you know uh, music on a blockchain, so I build my own blockchain. I don't build an app on Ethereum, right? Mm -hmm. That changed, and so that's exactly what we're seeing now. I think that there's incredible economic value that can come from sharing infrastructure, from sharing state and sharing the sequencing layer is one step towards that. It's not the complete step, but it does greatly facilitate that. Hmm. What are the um, economic implications of all of this? Josh, you've mentioned MEV a couple of times, like how does Astria and Espresso, I would love to get both of your takes, like plan on, plan on addressing this. Yeah, so I guess it's like a deep question that like, I don't know how much time we have, right? But like obviously any MEV discussion can take however much time you have to fill. 
Um, but like generally, right, like the, the, the implications, I guess, you know, we talked about like the centralized sequencers, right, where right now we're just kind of like trusting that like you are not being front run by optimism or arbitrum using, you know, whatever like sock puppet accounts they may or may not have in front of your transactions, right? We're going to, you know, be kind of like like optimistic here, right, and assume they are not doing so within this kind of like credibly neutral system, right? You know, even if you have 10, you know, nodes in like a sequencer network or whatever that's rotating, right, any one of these is, you know, now competing with the other to some degree, depending on how you weight it, we'll assume it's like proof of stake or whatever, right? And so it's in their benefit to like be economically like most profitable, right? You know, you have this competition like intranetwork now. Um, and so each validator sequencer or whatever within the network wants to be like the best and return the most profit for, you know, whether you're getting kind of like a staking or like a delegation, stuff like that, right? Um, and what that leads to, right, is kind of like MEV as this way to capture more rewards because fundamentally there is value in transaction ordering. The job of a sequencer is to order transactions. It is economically in the best interest of whoever gets that role for this slot to extract that value, whether they hold that themselves or whether they return that to their delegates um, or, or whatever. But it's kind of in their interest to kind of capture that value. How that plays out, um, I think is like a larger question, right? Um, whether it's, you know, you have many rollups and each rollup is making an argument for, hey, we are contributing this much economic value to the chain. Any MEV that gets extracted should be, you know, returned to like the rollup. There's questions over whether it should just, you know, in my mind, at least, whether it should be turned to users, whether there is, it's desirable for, you know, kind of as Ben points out, this kind of network of people within this shared network that have more interoperability. Do we want to be encouraging kind of, you know, really strong boundaries between the different rollups to say, well, this rollup gets this slice of the pie and this rollup gets this slice of the pie versus, you know, you are users of a singular network and then rollups are one kind of like sub, you know, state machine within this larger network. I, I think that's like an open question we're going to kind of investigate and like have to kind of evaluate here. Yeah, I, I think that, uh, we can start with asking, okay, well, what if every single rollup were just running on the same sequencing layer, but uh, but we didn't have interoperability or cross rollup transactions? I don't think it's actually the shared sequencing layer that complicates it. It's the existence of cross rollup activity. So let's let's start with a world in which everyone is just running their rollup using the sequencing layer as they would use a data availability layer. Um, then you know they're they're paying infrastructure costs for using the sequencing layer, but uh, they uh, what, what, whether it's the whether it's the what, even though if the sequencing layer is actually determining the ordering, it's you know easy to see. Okay, transactions for rollup A are isolated from rollup B, so any any value that's extracted um, through bids that users are are making on ordering preferences, which is just what MEV is. It's a form of you know fee accrual, just it's accruing for, for combinatorial preferences and not just simple demand for gas, then that value could be given entirely to the rollup and the rollup can decide how to allocate that among its stakeholders or provers, et cetera. Um, that is a, you know, an economic contract between the sequencing layer uh, and, and, and each rollup. Where it gets complicated is when rollups start to take advantage of the fact that they're now running over an infrastructure that makes cross-domain activity so much easier, right? And But that's a thing that users want. So it's an, an inevitability. And shared sequencing just makes it easier for that to happen. It, it, even if you didn't have shared sequencing, but you had bridging, right, this would become a challenge. Like Now you have you know, bridges handling uh, transactions that should only be executed on one or the other, right? How do you 
the 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 um, the user would not be transacting if it weren't able to transact on both simultaneously. So how do you now divide the the fee that it's paying between the two parties? Uh, and that because that that becomes trickier to figure out in terms of economic allocation. Um, it's a it's a fascinating uh, you know economic research question that I'd love to engage everyone on. Um, but I think that this is totally solvable. Hmm. Um, Nick White had this tweet, I think it was yesterday or earlier this week. He said the shared sequencer paradox. He said, option A, extract MEV, but be less attractive for rollups to use. Option, uh, that's option A. Option B, don't extract MEV, but lose value capture. So what What do you do? What, what do you think about that question? Or there's probably I mean, a background. Yeah, my, my view is like, like the, to like Ben's point about like the combinatorial kind of like complications of this, right? Like there's a question of like, can you calculate this in real time, right? Like how do you kind of like calculate the counterfactual? I think one of the big questions is you say, you know, you have two rollups, right? There's like, you know, with only one rollup being present, there is only like the MAV on that rollup with only the other rollup present, you know, the same thing. How much of the kind of like MEV that is extractable is created by the existence of both? Which of them is contributing which portion of that? How do you calculate that? That I think is the really messy economic question to the fundamental idea of like what percent of all the MEV would be extracted across like a shared sequencer. I think that runs into kind of, you know, ideological questions of like, you know, the Arbitrum versus like Flashbots divide, right? Do you fundamentally view an auction mechanism for ordering as like an illegitimate kind of like, like a moral position? Um, you know, and like, like I do not, but like, that is like a moral position, like some people have taken. Um, but if you don't, then I do generally think you relatively rapidly accelerate towards like all of the MEV is extracted. And the barrier there is really these things like, you know, MEV share, order flow auction, things like, you know, MEV wallet by like, like, like James Presswitch, right. Of like, just give the user more tools to specify their preferences up front, such that they are not just kind of you know, sending these transactions that have like enormous slippage limits so that they are getting kind of you know, front run or sandwich or wherever to have that MV extracted. And their kind of negotiation can happen in that market where you say, well, hey, I'm going to submit a transaction with really, really low slippage. And you say, all right, well, it might take a while for your transaction to be included, but then, you know, you will only suffer that slippage, right? And the user can choose kind of the preferences in that. So I guess, you know, Coming back to kind of, you know, Nick White's point, I generally think that the shared sequencer themselves, you know, once they instate, if they instate, you know, some PBS style um, market um, place, whether it's, you know, uh, an in-protocol PBS or an extra protocol PBS, will probably extract like the bulk of the MEV available that is like profitable for builders, searchers, whatever to like find and extract. How the revenue gets shared after the fact is probably the larger, stickier question. Hmm. Ben, you agree with that? Yeah, especially the last thing that Josh said. I don't. I don't yeah. think that there's. Uh, I don't think that there's really a paradox here. I think it's more nuanced than that, and it's it's exactly what Josh said. I think we can expect um, sequen sequencing layers similar to any other decentralized system like Ethereum to uh, to take profit from from users who are paying for their combinatorial preferences. That is essentially what MEV is. And then the question is, how do they allocate that among the, the rollups yeah. that have decided to use them and essentially feed them? Are rollups with different block times still composable if they have a shared sequencer? So I think that's actually like an important 
point to note is like, and, and, and Ben would love to understand if you have a different perspective, because that changes my view quite a bit. But, but our view is that like the shared sequencer defines the block time of like the rollups that use the shared sequencer. Like the shared sequencer uh, has a block that. time. And if you use the shared sequencer, your block time is that because they're making these like, you know, mega blocks or meta blocks or whatever you want to call them, right? And then your rollup is extracting its subset of, you know, stuff from that block, right? Um, that, that's like my view, Ben, if you have a different point. No, I have exactly the same view. However, I I think that like we can look at the block time of the sequencing layer as just the block time of the sequencing layer, right? You can build an application on top of it that introduces a different kind of latency, uh, you know, to some degree. Um, and, and it's not it, it. Let's say that, for example, you um, you know have uh, a builder for for a given rollup that wants to take longer to build a block, right? It could buy up the uh, uh, you know the the slots to process for a certain amount of time. And this is just a straw man. I think there's a lot of caveats to this particular thing, but it's maybe an easier thing to understand. Just as a straw man, imagine uh, there's a builder that you know you auction off the right to to process the next ten blocks for uh, for a given for a given uh, you know for a given rollup that's being sequenced by the sequencer, then now that that builder is going to take you know 10, 10 block periods in order to build like uh, um, a super block and now you have a longer block time for that rollup so it's just a, mm. a simple way of illustrating how you can always build things on top of the system that gives you some kind of guarantees that put other restrictions because you're trying to do something at the application level um, you can even do this at the application level right like an application and a smart contract on ethereum could effectively have a longer block time what does it even mean for a uh, block time it's we, i think it makes more sense to talk about like the latency of some kind of action that's happening within the application itself uh we could have like a, a voting protocol where we all submit votes for a day and we're using ethereum well the application that is running running this election now has a latency of a day. You don't get the you don't get the results and you know until a day mm -hmm. later, um, but it could still run on a base you know data and availability and ordering layer that is uh, you know that is <clears throat> that that even have, has instant finality. I mean, it sort of yeah. was talking about in my mind. Um, School space guys, uh, it's it's funny. It's still so early that you guys are still doing podcasts together. That's how you know it's a small space. Um, because <laughs> you're trying to push this, uh, clearly push this narrative of shared sequencers together. But eventually what will end up happening is you grow the pie to be large enough. And then you guys are obviously competing against each other and you have live products in the market. What what is the what is your like working model of of that timeline? What, when do Ben and Josh become a Less, less friendly <laughs> spicy, spicy questions here i mean <laughs> you know i, I and I, I said this in the last pod, podcast but i've uh you know i've been in the industry a while and i think that one of the, the great things about this industry is that we a lot of builders in this space do tend to have sort of a positive some attitude um and uh and i think that these are the early days for the technology is the early days in particular for like the L2 scalability of, of, of these layer one blockchains. Um, so I think even if ostensibly services that are running out there become com competitors, they still cooperate on a shared mission of convincing the rest of the world that this is a good idea. Um, they still cooperate on research questions. And so it's like a friendly competition in some sense. 
right? Mm. And that's been my experience for the entire time I've been in this industry. I've worked with a lot of different projects. And I, of course, there are some projects that have sharper elbows and I, I don't like that as much. And I think it really detracts from the, um, the community feeling that we have in this space. Yeah, I mean, Josh, what's I, your I spent... working timeline on this? Yeah, I, I think, you know, we're targeting kind of, you know, intra-year, but like, you know, that's like a long time frame to give in any kind of like engineering estimate. You know, the general thing is like anything over like a week is like, you know, highly, um, you know, skeptical because um, a lot of things can happen, you know, in, in a two-week period, much less like a six-month period, but like, like you sooner rather than later, you know. I think one of going back to like one of the really early questions, right. Of like, is there like a technical blocker to like, you know, the existing centralized sequencers doing that, like not really in that, like, you know, to, to what Ben said a lot, right. Like this looks very similar to like standing up like a new L1 network, right. Like you go get like a bunch of validators, you know, in Ben's case, you know, the, the eigenlayer guys, um, and you stand up like a new network and you make sure they coordinate and you run the network and you produce blocks for the network. Like it's not a truly novel problem. The kind of specificity of like what that network is doing is novel, but like actually standing up a network is not like, you know, something that hasn't been done before, you know, how many, you know, tenement chains launch in like a given year, you know, quite a few. Um, so, so in that, you know, we're, we're targeting like, like entry year, um, to, to the competition point, you know, I, I know I haven't spent, you know, that long in this industry, you know, two and a half years or so, but even coming from like big tech and I was biased, I spent a lot of time in open source there, you know, I, I do think it is this competitive environment. You know, I go to conferences where it would be, you know, IBM and Google and AWS and Azure, you know, all presenting at the conference, you know, one after the other, and we're all building, you know, roughly the same thing. Um, you know, just like whatever competitive plugin we had on whatever open source project or whatever, right? But it's generally kind of, you know, having these competing pressures against each other is beneficial for like the industry as a whole, right? Like what we want is to like push forward the like functionality of like crypto and decentralized networks, you know, generally. Um, and so if one of us is more competitive than the other, then that is a forcing function on the other to say, hey, look, like you got to get your stuff together. You know, you got to do a better job to like kind of compete in the market. And that kind of forces progress throughout the whole industry. And I think that's a beneficial thing. And it doesn't need to be, you know, everyone being at each other's throats to do that. It's just accept the fact that you are working in like a competitive environment and compete. Yeah. Last question here. Um, uh, ben or Josh, I, I don't remember actually who mentioned this in, in our Zero X research podcast. Um, but one of you mentioned something that about restaking where you said, look, re restaking, super exciting, but also has the chance to something will get blown up because of restaking in the next cycle. I, I actually don't remember who that was who said that, but can, can you just expand on like maybe more details there on, on why you think that? Cause I, I think, think it was yeah. Yeah. That, that, that was that was me maybe someone obviously and, and like i you know i'm not like you know hyper bearish on like restaking i think it's like generally good and this is like somewhat of like a hyperbolic take right but like fundamentally right like restaking is like rehypothecation of risk right you're saying like we have some amount of like economic stake here and we're going to do multiple things on it and there are now multiple things that could happen that are a failure mode right you know whether they're you know it's the question of like is it a fraud proof or is it a fault proof right and there's like the ideological question of like okay did they mess up or were they actively malicious in that right and to some degree that's like irrelevant but it's like something can go wrong and that can slash an amount of stake right how many layers of things will we restake with the same amount of kind of economic weight to what point of like, you know, over some long time frame, one of those things will go wrong. And just generally my view, again, being a relatively cynical person is that like you will stretch a system to the limits until you find the failure mode. And then you will kind of have this pendulum back and forth. 
with. And so I think we will do a lot of good things with restaking. We will enable a lot of new kind of development with like strong economic guarantees, but like maybe someone's going to mess up and then we're going to say, okay, well, maybe we went a little bit too far. Maybe we should, you know, adjust the parameters on this. This is similar to other kind of economic markets, right? You know, you change, you know, the interest rate, such and such. You have some, you know, strong economic engagement because, hey, look, we managed to do a lot more with a given amount of capital. And then you have a collapse of some kind and you say, okay, well, we're going to adjust you know, adjust what the kind of like deposit ratios are required to be. That's my rough thesis on what I think will happen with restaking. But I also think to some degree, the, you know, inevitability of a decentralized network is that like, no one's allowed to say we're not doing this, right? Like you can implement it. You can put the contract on chain. People will use it if it's desirable, right? And then, you know, we'll just kind of deal with it as like an ecosystem to see like what are kind of the, the, the push and the pull on it. Yeah, I, I don't agree with that, but I, I respect that perspective. Um, I, I think it's actually pre pretty fundamentally different from uh, from from being over leveraged in other economic scenarios. Um, uh, restaking is subsidizing participation of participants who have already locked up capital for something, and it's giving them the right to participate in something else. I think that we're sort of conflating a lot of different things here. So what is the person? First of all, I think the main thing is that, is this a personal risk that's being taken on by an individual validator who is now participating in multiple protocols, or is there a systemic risk? Is there a contagion that can spread from multiple validators experiencing, I don't know, errors for different protocols and somehow being slashed when they shouldn't be? Um, there's also the fact that slashing is not supposed to be used for things that could be could happen by accident, right? I'm not going to say never, right? But like that's why we don't slash for liveness. Like slashing fundamentally should not be used for liveness. Anyone who's talking about doing that, I think it just it's that that is on its own extraordinarily risky. Slashing is used for safety. It's used for preventing nodes who 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 knowingly deviate from the protocol and double sign messages and. Could that happen accidentally? I mean, a node could be corrupted because it could be compromised or hacked, but that's actually something that we do want to slash for, right? Because that's a form of corruption. That's not accidental. Um, it's hard to accidentally sign two messages if there's not a corruption. So, uh, and, and even if, if it is a case like that, even still maybe something we want to slash for because it increases the incentive for nodes to ensure that that is not something that can happen. Now, are these independent, uncorrelated faults across the different systems? I don't think so either, right? I don't, I think that if you're, if you're, um, like, I don't think that there's an independent probability P that you may like accidentally sign two messages for one of the protocols you're participating in. Um, there's, there's correlation between the measures that you're taking in order to prevent that accident from happening across mm -hmm. different, uh, different systems. Now, but finally, I would say that this is a local risk. It's not a systemic risk. So if a party ends up getting slashed because something accidental happened and they lose their economic state, it gets redistributed. It doesn't fundamentally change the security properties of the system. Hmm. Josh, Ben. Yeah. Great chat, guys. Um, I think this is a good place to stop. Got you guys to disagree on something. Tried to make it spicy. <laughs> man. Uh, so no, I, I really appreciate this. It feels early for the shared sequencer hmm. space. Uh, I feel like you two are both leading the charge. So I appreciate you guys coming on. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure. And thanks, when, Josh. Um, if we were to do a part two, when do you guys think would be appropriate in terms of your development cycle and your timeline over the next, you know, one to two years? 
mean, what are we? We're doing April now. I think we'd see a lot of yeah. things around when it's when it's like ECC, like July, like somewhere in circa around July. like ECC might be like a timeline when we definitely have like guaranteed like significant progress. And I think that's a long yeah. enough time where we'd see kind of where things are like dynamically different than they are now. In an optimistic yeah, case, maybe we'll leave the listeners like chomping at the bit. In an optimistic case. Uh, and it's hard when you use optimi- optimistic in this context, <laughs> but anyways, no bias. When do you think that we'll see decentralized sequencers? If we were to like plant your flag and say, we're going to have them by 12 months time or two years time. No, I mean, we'll definitely have them within a year. Yeah, cer- okay. certainly within a year. I, th- I think, you know, more than, you know, 12 months is like getting pretty pessimistic again. It's, it's not that mm-hmm. challenging of a technical problem. Like there's not like mm-hmm. that you know, wildly unsolved kind of problem. It's more of like a prioritization. And I think, right. you know, the burn down of kind of other priorities, you know, whether it's through, you know, you know, um, Espresso or Astria's kind of shared sequencers or through, you know, roll-up projects, kind of independent decentralization efforts, I think we'll certainly see it within 12 months. Nice. I mean, I, I don't want to... I, I, I don't want to uh, to oversimplify. I, I do think that building any of these systems are really hard. Uh, I think decentralized systems are hard in general. So I don't, I don't think, I would never say that this is easy. I would never say that anything that, that, that we're building is easy here. Um, but uh, I do think that, you know, according to our timeline and, and Josh's timeline, we'll have decentralization of sequencers within a year. Um, I think it may take time for the system to fully mature in terms of the sure. after effects of that. Like, are we going to have um, a robust, like, are we, are we going to solve mechanism design for the space <laughs> within a year? Or are we going to, um, you know, are we going to have like fully operational bridges across all rollups that are running on shared decentralized sequencers? Are we going to have, you know, um, Proposer builder separation perfectly solved. I don't know that that will happen within a year, but it will, will certainly the first steps will happen. That's awesome, guys. Well, we'll certainly have to have you guys then within uh, a year uh, or before that. So I uh, really appreciate the time. It's a it's a very important topic. Uh, so uh, you know, great having you guys on. Awesome. Thanks. Thank for you so us. much. This is really fun. Mm-hmm.